How are you? Where are you? What's your current situation with COVID? I hope that wherever you are, you and your family are safe and well. It's been a couple months since my last COVID-19 and skiing podcast with Altera CEO Rusty Gregory. In the first nine COVID episodes, I wanted to document the immediate fallout from COVID-19 on the ski industry, but the long-term impacts are important too, so we're going to keep talking about it. Today, we're going to talk about J-1 visas for guest workers. Don't fall asleep on me now. This podcast is going to help you understand why you see so many college-age kids bumping lifts or ringing up your oatmeal in places like rural Maine with name tags identifying them as being from South and Central America and why the ski industry needs these folks so badly. This year, they might not get them. Last month, President Trump issued a proclamation suspending J-1s and a host of other visas through the end of this year. This is going to create problems for the ski industry, who have trouble staffing up even in normal times. The National Ski Areas Association, the NSAA, is fighting back, asking the government to carve out an exception and let them bring these folks in by December 1st. The NSAA is a tremendous organization, and their president, Kelly Pollack, came in the show during one of those earlier COVID episodes. Today, we'll hear from another one of their leaders, Dave Bird. First though, just a note about politics. Politics has kind of ruined America, as we all know. Everything is a fight. I mean, look at COVID. We've managed to turn even that into a boxing ring. And I know you come here to get away from all that, but not every discussion of a political issue has to get political. And I'm not coming here today to attack anyone. The fact is that the president made a decision that's going to profoundly affect skiing. And I want to take a look at what that means. Let's go. Dave Bird is the Director of Risk and Regulatory Affairs for the National Ski Areas Association. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stu. So on June 22nd, President Trump suspended most immigration visas until December 31st of this year, including the J-1 visas that ski resorts like to use. Break this down for us, Dave. What is a J-1 visa? How does the ski industry use them? And how does the president's suspension of these visas impact the ski industry? Well, there, there's two, two visas. We use J-1s and we use H-2Bs, two different types of non-immigration visas, meaning they are visas that do not lead to permanent resident immigration status, um, like a green card. But these are temporary seasonal work visas. Um, and a lot of different businesses outside the ski industry utilize both the J-1 and the H-2B. The J-1 um, that we use, there's a lot of subcategories within the J-1 uh, universe. We use what's called summer work travel, which is a diplomacy and advocacy uh, or cultural advocacy program within the State Department that has a, a job and worker function. Um, that is secondary to the cultural and diplomacy side of that. And we'll talk about that more. Within the J-1 world, uh, in addition to summer work travel, there is uh, au pairs, as you would think of, say, a nanny uh, coming over from Estonia uh, to be an au pair in the U.S. for a family. There are camp counselors. Um, there are teacher trainee programs. There are medical programs. There's a number of these kind of uh, subcategories uh, within the J-1 universe. So 
with for skiers, we're using summer work travel. And what that means is these are college students. So for the Southern Hemisphere, because their uh, kind of their summer break in college aligns with our winter ski season, um, they're coming up to the U.S. Um, to see how American businesses operate. And that's part of that cultural and diplomacy program. They're improving their English skills. They're providing uh, supplemental workforce uh, needs for businesses. And this is used both in the summer and winter in the U.S. In the summer, a lot of the uh, beach resorts, golf resorts, uh, hospitality, uh, any type of lodging and hospitality programs are using them, including uh, President Trump's casinos and golf resorts. Mar-a-Lago uses these a lot themselves. And so we use them in the winter. Now, we also use them in the summer because skiers have uh, dramatically expanded their four-season operations. There's also uh, an intern component separate and apart from summer work travel. Uh, that intern, which is a separate visa under the J-1s, those are specifically for college students who are going towards a career in hospitality in some fashion. And so they mm-hmm. take internee positions. Deer Valley, for example, utilizes them very successfully and it's a wonderful program. Um, if you're in a hospitality major or, or lodging type of study program down in New Zealand or South Africa, or South America, or wherever, uh, these internee programs in the U.S., because of our American business models are so well honed, those are very great positions to get uh, as an internee. And it also serves as a supplemental work program as well. What kind of jobs do we see these folks doing when we go to the ski resorts? So a lot, it, it depends on the ski area, food and beverage, um, the hospitality and lodging positions, maybe they're working front desk at a hotel when you check in. They uh, may be doing banquet services, chairlift operators, uh, you know, special event uh, type programs. What they are not doing typically for J1s that the ski industry uses we, we don't use them for ski patrol. We generally don't use them for ski instructors. We don't uh, use them for snowmaking or grooming or general mountain operations type positions. So those are the programs we typically use them for, and it differs for some of our skiers. And, and the overwhelming majority of the 470 skiers in the U.S., uh, Stu, these are in rural, remote areas, uh, pretty far from any sort of population base. Take Lutzen, Minnesota, for example, up on the far northern shore of Lake Superior. It's it's almost two hours from Duluth, um, which is its nearest, you know, a town of any size for labor. Uh, so clearly places like Lutzen, like Telluride, like Mammoth, like Big Sky, I, I mean, I could go on a long list. Uh, of skiers that are so remote that they need supplemental labor who embrace the J-1 program. And uh, the spirit of the J-1 program is all about cultural exchange and diplomacy. And so when our skiers utilize these programs for these students coming up from the Southern Hemisphere, you know, there's this is required by the State Department, which oversees these programs. Our skiers are, are hosting cultural events, uh, they're doing potlucks. They're t- 
taking them to cultural uh, institutions within their area. I know in Colorado, for example, when the J1s, they bring them up to Denver for a trip to to see the museums up in Denver. CEOs and general managers host them over for their, for dinners at their house to talk about, you know, America and how our capitalistic system works. Um, they do uh, all sorts of things that are in town in terms of cultural affairs. So we really focus on that cultural exchange because that's really the heart of the program. And honestly, we've been utilizing and embracing this program for so many years. Our, our skier guests uh, really enjoy, you know, seeing someone who's a chairlift operator from Jamaica or Peru or Buenos Aires or South Africa or, you know, Australia or wherever. These are, you know, particularly for kids in Central and South America and the Caribbean, you know, expanding people's English skills has, is a net positive for the United States. The program, actually, the J-1 program in general, was started back in the early 60s as part uh, of the Cold War initiative to kind of counter Soviet propaganda about um, negative stereotypes about the U.S. So we thought, well, let's bring people in from all over the world uh, and show them, you know, we capitalism is a good thing. And competitive business operations leads to an overall improved society and Americans are good people at heart. So it, it's almost in a weird way, it's a, it's a reverse Peace Corps program. And we've continued it now for uh, more than 40-some years, 50-some years now, I should say. Um, and it, it's just been a huge success, not just with the skier, but with any business that utilizes the students if they're using a summer work travel program. So it sounds like it's really been mutually beneficial I, what is the resort's responsibility to these workers? Do, do they just pay them a wage or do they bring them up from Argentina or wherever and then provide them housing meals? Is, is it just to pay for bumping lifts? Or what do the resorts actually have to give them to, to get these jobs done? So the, the, the resorts, the skier is work with sponsoring agencies here in the U.S. who handle a lot of the recruiting um, a lot of the, the regulatory process through the State Department, um, there's interviews, there's background checks, there's fingerprinting. Um, they have to, as I mentioned, interview down at the uh, embassies where they're coming from. Uh, if they're coming from, say, Romania or Poland, they're going to embassies over there. They provide their own travel, but we do pay them the same wage rate um, as American workers. Um, the J-1s work with the skiers to find housing in the local community. Quite honestly, probably just in the last 10 years, um, skiers have realized because of VRBO and Airbnb sucking up all of the kind of available rental properties or mother-in-law suites or whatever, um, skiers have really invested uh, significantly in housing uh, for employee housing and workforce housing. Whether they own it or whether they contract and lease it out with various entities, I know some ski areas will lease out an entire local hotel, for example, for uh, foreign guest workers like J1s and H2Bs to ensure an adequate supply of housing. So the housing, though, is on the J1 students themselves. They, they, they pay that housing 
themselves. These are, uh, as you would imagine, these are college students from Santiago or Mexico City or Costa Rica. And so they're, they tend to be middle class or upper middle class students from those uh, countries. And uh, the other thing that, that we do with them, and I, I referred to this earlier, is is the cultural exchange aspect. And so if someone's coming from Costa Rica um, or Peru, um, they will do presentations for American workers and for our ski resort workers who want to come and learn more about that. And we'll do the same vice versa, uh, showing various cultural activities for them to do. It could be a symphony in town. It could be a, a tour to uh, a national park nearby um, or the Appalachian Trail, for example, um, with some historical information. Uh, but for the most part, the key point is is that uh, we pay them the same wage rate uh, as American workers in the same position. Uh, travel is on the student themselves. Uh, one thing I want to mention, Stu, is that um, there's a tremendous economic benefit, uh, not just in providing some very much needed labor uh, as a component of this cultural exchange program, but these are, these students spend a lot of money in our rural communities. They are using up housing that may not otherwise be used. They are spending money at restaurants and grocery stores and gas stations and bars and retail. They're spending a lot of money on retail, on things that, that may not otherwise be readily available down where they're from. And the other uh, economic benefit that these students provide, um, oftentimes they come back year after year. You know, two or three years in college, they'll come back to Aspen or Steamboat or uh, Wyndham, New York, for example. Wherever they're going, uh, they come back and then they serve as what I call tourism anchors. So if you're coming up from Santiago, Chile, or uh, Buenos Aires, your friends and family may want to use that as an excuse to take a trip to the United States and come visit you um, at Catalucci in North Carolina or uh, Big Sky or Schweitzer in Idaho. And so in that, that regard, they do uh, serve as a very important uh, resource and an economic benefit to the local community. Uh, so we, we emphasize that when we're talking with members of Congress and within the administration and with governors about the importance of this program beyond the, the inherent benefits that are provided by the cultural exchange aspect. So these programs have been going on for a long time. It sounds like they've become a really key part of the North American ski industry business model. Trump pulls the rug out from underneath of all of this. What does that mean, Dave, for this coming season? Well, right now, under Trump's proclamation, it runs currently until the end of December, so December 31st, 2020. We are going to be working with the administration, with members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, to help us advocate to the White House, to the State Department, to the Department of Labor and Homeland Security and we're going to make a, a, a very strong economic argument um, seeking a modification of the proclamation. And within the proclamation itself, there are vehicles for modifying the proclamation and, and certain exemptions. One of the exemptions 
is if some of these programs, whether it's H1B uh, visas, H2B, J1s, L visas, whatever the visa category, if you if you can show that there is either a basis for how it relates to COVID, medical research is a good example, or how, and this is from our standpoint, how it can be used to facilitate the continued economic recovery of the United States, uh, they can modify the proclamation. And so one thing I know that the National Ski Areas Association is doing, working with, you know, we have a, a, a good 15 different state associations like Ski Vermont or Colorado Ski Country or Ski California, Ski Utah, um, the, the the bigger ski states, they have their own state associations that are advocacy groups. So NSA works with them and their local congressional delegations to make arguments uh, and to advocate uh, for whatever the particular issue is. So we're going to be doing that um, over the next several weeks, and we're going to ask specifically we need uh, both J-1s and H-2Bs, even at a time of higher unemployment because of COVID, to give us a modification that allows these people to be in country by December 1st. Um, if you think about it, Stu, um, with uh, so many skiers impacted in March by the early closures, as an industry, we lost uh, more than $2 billion for, for the 2020 year. Uh, because of that early closure, missing out on spring break and Easter. We can't have that happen again for our winter and holiday season. I would estimate that that period of time between mid-December and the first week of January, you know, it's a three- to four-week window, we make upwards of 20 to 25% of revenue for entire season during that window. And we have to be staffed appropriately during a non-COVID traditional ski season, it's important. But during this unusual season with COVID, um, we're likely going to need additional uh, staff for a lot of different reasons. Think about your your ski lesson. And granted, we don't use a lot of J1s for ski instructors, but we do use H2B visas for ski instructors, particularly if you have a higher mm. certification like a level two or a level three through PSIA. But without group lessons where you could do six or eight in a group lesson, now, uh, you know, we're going to be solely down to lessons within a family unit. Um, that may mean we need a lot more ski instructors. So think of chairlift uh, social distancing in lift lines. How do we manage that? Um, uh, you obviously got one or two lift attendants at the load area, but we may need more people to help uh, manage and uh, enforce distancing within the lift lines themselves. Food and beverage operations are going to be dramatically changed uh, because of COVID. Um, and and we're, it still remains to be seen how those operations are going to play out. Is it more food trucks? Is it more uh, outdoor table uh, delivery? Um, is it reservations at 50% capacity inside the lodge? Um, is it heated tents outside? We don't know what that's going to look like, uh, but we're obviously uh, going to have to be staffed in such a way that we can deliver on that food and beverage uh, promise and guest service satisfaction to our guests. 
So I think we really do have strong economic arguments uh, that the Trump administration, I'm, I'm very hopeful and encouraged, will listen to. So it sounds like we might be in a situation where even if ski areas have to operate in a reduced capacity, which I think is likely, at least in some states, they're going to need more staff. Dave, do you, do you think that, that, well, it seems like you do have the sense that carving out this exception or asking them to carve out this exception is your best route to this rather than, say, trying to sue and stop this thing in the courts? Well, I know the ski industry doesn't have uh, necessarily an appetite to sue right now. That doesn't mean other business sectors aren't going to sue. For example, um, you, you may have heard already Trump just announced today uh, that foreign students at colleges who are here under uh, visas, education visas, have to go home if those colleges are offering courses uh, virtually. Now, within hours of that uh, executive order, Harvard and MIT sued. Um, now, that's separate and apart from what we're doing. But under this June 22nd proclamation, it impacts a wide variety of visas. And so I, I am certain there's going to be multiple lawsuits. Silicon Valley, which uses H1 uh, visas for high-tech uh, IT-type workers, um, coders, you know, uh, website development and, and technology workers, um, they're certainly going to sue. I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if the H2B community, and that H2B community uh, is utilized by a lot of different sectors. That's golf courses, landscaping, food processing, seafood, forestry, um, uh, lots of different sectors, not just skiers. We're probably, while we do utilize a good number of H2B visas, um, uh, we are not the the biggest user uh, within that category. A lot of those are seasonal type jobs, like a landscaping job, um, and 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 that's the key to both the H two B and J one program, Stu. And this is really important for your audience to understand. These are seasonal, temporary jobs. These are not jobs that you know what we have seen um, and what we have heard anecdotally. Uh, from HR directors around the industry and in other industries uh, is that Americans don't want seasonal jobs, particularly jobs cleaning hotel rooms or working as a landscaper. I mean, the construction industry alone uses so many H2Bs, which to this day surprises me because when I was growing up, having a construction job, if you didn't go to college, was a pretty solid way to, to make a good living and get health insurance. Yeah. So, um, but for us in the ski industry, these are temporary jobs. These are seasonal jobs. And we, we do want to hire our, our, our folks in our local community. And we do job fairs. You've got skiers in, in, in the mountains in Colorado that go into Denver or Fort Collins or Colorado Springs and do job fairs in those communities, even though those are an hour to two hours away by car. And they're not as fruitful in terms of encouraging people uh, to take uh, seasonal temporary jobs. Throw in the fact that we are subject to the vagaries of Mother Nature as an industry. And so mm -hmm. if you want to be a ski instructor, if you want to be a lift operator, uh, um, a ski patroller, whatever, if, if Mother Nature doesn't cooperate, it makes it very difficult 
to plan accordingly for getting enough hours. So that also, uh, in addition to the challenges with high housing costs, uh, compounds our challenges that we have in the industry for staffing. If I'm understanding this correctly, for an H-2B, you actually have to first advertise that job to Americans. Is that right? Yes, and, and that's a really good point because we were pretty surprised that H-2B visas were included in Trump's proclamation, in part because the whole uh, overarching theme of the proclamation is to protect American workers. And the H-2B visa is the only foreign worker visa, temporary visa, that is required by law for employers to utilize that visa program, you have to advertise and prove to the Department of Labor, which oversees it, that you advertised, you interviewed, you still couldn't after that effort. And it's a pretty highly regulated effort, um, still could not get enough Americans to fill those jobs whether those are landscapers, construction workers, lodging workers doing uh, hospitality, food and beverage, and housekeeping. So we were surprised that that was in his proclamation. And I wouldn't be surprised because of that uh, requirement to establish to the DOL first uh, that you couldn't find American workers. I wouldn't be surprised if key components of that program also get modified in the proclamation as some type of exemption. And we will be pushing uh, for a modification on that basis as well. The reality is, you know, unemployment where it is now, we've seen May and June unemployment reports with the, the recent spike in June of COVID cases, particularly in the South, we may see even higher unemployment come uh, the July report the Federal Reserve has said nationally they predict unemployment by the end of the year to be 9%. And even with that uh, high level of unemployment, and that is a high level, there are other uh, challenges that may prevent us from taking advantage of having a larger pool of unemployed people who may be interested in jobs, even temporary seasonal jobs. Right now, for example, there are going to be some states and jurisdictions that may not have people going back, students going back to school, meaning mom or dad may have to stay at home, which cuts mm -hmm. out a part of the workforce because working at a skier is not something you can do virtually. Second, if Congress extends unemployment benefits, right now uh, the enhanced unemployment until the end of July is a $600 extra a week. If Congress enacts that, and I think what they'll do is they may not have extended at $600, they might compromise between Republicans and Democrats, and you'll probably get something closer to 200 to 300, or maybe it's tied to a local unemployment rate um, within a region or state. But both of those uh, present challenges. The third challenge is simply COVID itself. Whether it's the ski industry, the restaurant industry, the hotel and lodging industry, whatever your business sector, uh, grocery stores, there is a very legitimate concern for essential workers um, and non-essential workers to be engaging with the public in whatever fashion. And so you may have uh, some people who have underlying conditions like diabetes or uh, some sort of immunosuppressed condition that they're advised not to take a job where they're interacting with the public, particularly 
uh, a public that may be coming in from other states that may be having a spike in their COVID cases. So we're going to use those those arguments, which are very legitimate arguments, which are going to make the job of an HR person very, very challenging for this winter. And I do think they all kind of coalesce into an argument with the Trump administration that suggests we really do need access to J-1s and H-2Bs at a much lower level, admittedly, than we traditionally use because of higher unemployment, but we still need them uh, because, A, they provide some level of uh, stability and economic certainty in terms of staffing uh, because they're here in country. And that's the other thing, Stu, I'd like to say about these programs. These are students and, and young people who want to work, who want to take on two jobs, who want uh, to take on overtime. Um, and that's very, very helpful to our skiers because of their interest in working one or two different jobs. They may even take on an additional job within the community somewhere. So they're a great resource to us. But while, for example, with J-1s, we're using about seven or 8,000 of them a year at 470 ski areas, we're going to be using about half that. Uh, but still, even at half the level of normal, we still need them as a critical staffing resource for us. So that's what you're asking for. You're, you're asking them to raise it to half of what you normally use. Well, we we're not asking for a specific percentage. We're asking for a modification to the date they can come into the country. So December first, we want them. We want the Trump administration to give us 30 days. Relax the proclamation by 30 days. Let uh, some of these foreign guest worker temporary visa holders come in and and help us staff our resorts during one of our busiest periods of the season. So I just want to pause here for a moment and, and, and clarify this, because this is, is a skiing podcast. People aren't used to hearing political stuff. And tensions are high right now, and I don't want listeners to accuse me of getting political. So I just want to clarify that many Republican-leaning groups, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, are opposed to this proclamation. And you actually wrote another report a few years ago, Dave, in 2017, uh, you wrote on this issue and you pointed out that the Senate Appropriations Committee voted 31 to 0, that's that's bipartisan, <laughs> to oppose these types of restrictions. So, so there's Democrats and Republicans on that committee. So obviously there is bipartisan opposition to keeping these work, workers out of the country. Can you break this down for us, Dave? Who in the Trump administration is behind this and who are the Republicans that you're going to try to appeal to for an exception here? Well, they're, within the Trump administration, I like to call them good angels and bad angels, one on each shoulder of President Trump. There are immigrant opponents, Stephen Miller, Ken Cuccinelli, um, who um, have long been opposed to a, a wide variety of immigration issues, not just uh, seasonal worker programs, uh, but also uh, what they would call chain migration by being allowed to bring in a spouse uh, on a on a work visa or you know asylum seekers uh, like we saw at the U.S. Mexican border. Um, so they oppose immigration in all its forms, um, and obviously that element within the administration won out on this proclamation. Now on the other side, uh, who I would. Uh, like to call the good angels on this issue, they're telling the president that, look, there's a lot of very good and patriotic reasons why we need 
uh, economically access to some of these temporary seasonal workers. Let, let's use landscaping as a perfect example. So landscaping is a very challenging, arduous, physical job in, 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 in hot temperatures, for example. Um, Americans tend not to take those jobs. Um, and so what we see, and I work closely with the landscaping community uh, on these issues, you've got a landscaping company that may have 100 employees, uh, but they have to turn away projects because they don't have enough workers to get the projects done. Um, and that that's even at a time when you're paying, uh, you know, premium rates for seasonal work. You know, these are jobs that are paying far above minimum wage. And so when you leave that money on the table for a landscaping business, that's lost economic revenue, not just for that business, but also for that community in terms of taxes and the trickle-down effect. When a landscaping company has projects, they're also hiring uh, out nurseries, sod farms, uh, rental equipments like backhoes, those sort of things there's a significant trickle-down effect that impacts a lot of communities. Uh, so the, cha the Chamber of Commerce is a perfect example. About as staunch a Republican organization as you can find within the United States, very strong proponent of these temporary visa programs, whether it's for Silicon Valley or ski resorts or landscaping or, or whoever. They recognize that this, these programs uh, supplement American jobs, year-round jobs. Uh, they underwrite so much of the business activity that businesses that utilize these programs. You talk to a, a, a hotel uh, on Cape Cod or the Jersey Shore or in northern Minnesota, in, uh, in places where there isn't a, a large metropolitan area, um, think of the national park concessions. National parks, by definition, are almost always in very remote areas. And so their ability to hire people to operate food and beverage or retail or lodging in those communities is, is enormously challenging. And that's lost business activity, not just for the business owners and the concessionaires near and at national parks or on beaches or lakes um, or ski areas, but it's lost economic activity within these rural communities. So that's the two divides. You've got a pro-business side, and then you've got an anti-immigrant side. And we really believe, because of the economic situation we're now finding ourselves in because of the COVID pandemic, that the economic side here is going to win out eventually. Yeah, it's also interesting that, as you pointed out earlier, most ski areas in the United States tend to be in rural areas, right? And a lot of those areas are represented by Republican congressmen. And if you look at a lot of these communities, these very remote ski areas like Jackson Hole or Big Sky or Sugarloaf, Maine, or some of these ones even in the upper peninsula of Michigan, like Mount Bohemia, these are pretty major job and economic centers in those regions. And you have to think that those Republican congressmen would be inclined to support you in this effort and that you're, you're looking to help one of the major employees continue to operate at the kind of capacity that you need to bring in that economic activity to the local area in the wintertime. You're 100% right. Uh, traditionally, particularly in, in rural congressional districts um, or in states with 
uh, red states with Republican senators, we have hundreds of ski areas in those areas. And congressmen, for example, in the West, in some of these rural congressional districts, whether it's Utah or Montana or Idaho or even around Tahoe and California and Mammoth, uh, they recognize that our skier is, uh, I want to say approximately somewhere between 50 and 70 skier is in the U.S., not just in the West, are the largest employers in their county. Wow. And that, that's saying something. Um, mm-hmm. we, we are, as an industry, the economic engines of rural communities. And, and that's just a hard and fast truth. And uh, a Republican and Democratic congressmen get that immediately. When I go to Washington, D.C. and talk to them and remind them of the value of these programs, they understand it implicitly. And they recognize, because they're from rural communities, that labor is a significant challenge. Take Western Colorado. Congressman Tipton, Scott Tipton, a Republican, he represents the entire Western third of the state of Colorado, which Mm. probably has about 15 ski areas in it. He's a proponent and he's an advocate and and has been a very helpful advocate for us. Same with uh, someone like Liz Cheney in Wyoming or uh, Congressman McClintock in California. Whoever the Republican is, even the Democrats um, in in rural uh, communities uh, have supported us on these programs. And it's not just true for ski areas. When you've got congressmen who represent Cape Cod or Ocean City, Maryland, or the Outer Banks, North Carolina, um, they too utilize these programs because they're in rural, sparsely populated areas. And so uh, those Democrats and Republicans in those areas uh, are supportive. And so we're going to call on them both. Uh, both red and blue congressmen and congresswomen to help us make this economic argument to the administration. And so those people in the administration who are likely to listen to that are Peter Navarro, the economic advisor, uh, Kudlow, uh, who is an economic advisor, Mark Meadows, the new chief of staff, uh, former congressman from North Carolina. In his own congressional district in North Carolina, he utilized uh, the H-2B program and H-2A program for agriculture and uh, food processing programs in his own district. So he fully knows well that these are important programs to the businesses in those communities. And just so the listeners understand, since this proclamation came from the administration, this was not a law that Congress passed, what what congressmen can do here is influence the conversation. They can't actually go and do anything. Is that right? They can influence the conversation, uh, particularly Republicans, uh, Republican congressmen and women and senators, Republican senators. But the change itself has to come from the administration, right? Absolutely. And it will come from the Department of State, the DOL, and Homeland Security. They will be hearing from us and from other business sectors um, asking for various modifications to to some of the, the regulations that were handed down in this executive order. Congress is not going to pass a law uh, in an election year when we're focusing. They haven't even got the budgets done. Uh, so that's not an opportunity for us to get a congressional uh, legislation passed uh, to kind of counter this proclamation. 
So how are your members taking this, Dave, as you've been talking to different ski areas around the country? And, you know, I've gotten to know quite a few ski area managers, and some of them are liberal and some of them are very conservative. Uh, but but this is something that affects almost all of them. Um, what is the reaction, Ben, that you've been hearing from them? And, and, and is it fairly consistent? It is, it is uh, significantly consistent. Um I've got a, a ski area in Tennessee over Gatlinburg, Cataloochee, North Carolina, Cascade Mountain, Wisconsin, uh, Lutzen. Think of Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, Waterville. Uh, in New Hampshire, you mentioned Sugarloaf. Um, across the board, they're supportive of our efforts as a trade association at NSA um, to get this policy modified. Um, they are helping Many of them who are Republicans, particularly at, at larger destination resorts, have hosted fundraisers at their ski areas for a lot of these congressmen and senators. And so they'll call that favor in and they'll say, hey, do you remember when we hosted a fundraiser for you at Jackson Hole or at uh, Deer Valley or Steamboat or wherever? You really need to pick up the phone as a CEO or an owner or a general manager and call your local congressmen and congresswomen and senators. That that moves the needle so much more in terms of uh, influencing your congressmen. They listen to their constituents, congressmen, congresswomen, senators, governors. You pick up the phone, you shoot an email. It does not have to be some type of formalized letter on letterhead to Congress or to your governor or to your chamber of commerce. Um, when people start complaining and start leaving angry voicemail, that really gets the attention of members of Congress, and it's very influential. And so that's what we're, we're recommending at NSAA and working with your local media, because there is an element, and it's an uninformed element within some of our, our communities where skiers are located that say, you don't want to hire Americans. And that is absolutely not the case. We, you know, we do. We have job fairs. We People know that they can go get a job at a skier. But if you want a job that's a year-round job, working at a skier for five months uh, may not be your best bet. But it's certainly a good, a good solid job if you're looking to pay your rent and, and, and to live in that community and to have a, the, the benefits of a, a ski pass. But we hire as many Americans as we can. Um, let me give you one stat, Stu. We just did a study on this through NSA's research. Just in the southeast region alone, from Pennsylvania, West Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, on average, a ski area had 85 positions this past season, pre-COVID, that were not filled. That's a, an astonishing data point. Yeah, that, that's it. Kind of makes me wonder how they like what they weren't getting, and and it gives new perspective when I'm complaining about oh why isn't that lift running or, um or 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 you know why is only half the mountain open or whatever. Let me give you a great example. Whether it's Vermont, upstate New York, uh, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, you go to some of these ski towns, and you will find restaurants that are not open on Sunday or Monday nights because they simply do not have the staff or they wow. simply, because they're short staff, they have to, and these aren't ski area restaurants. These are restaurants in the community. They, they can't work 
the, their workers that they do have, their servers, their bartenders, their cooks, their sous chefs, you know, 70 hours a week because of their low staffing levels. So they will close on Sunday and Monday nights. And, and think about that lost local sales tax revenue, that lost revenue from payroll taxes. That's significant. And, and that's just a reality, whether it's in a normal ski season or a, a COVID ski season. All right. Well, so there's a lot at stake here, it sounds like. And as we all know, there's a presidential election in November. Uh, if Trump wins, he's here for four more years and he could extend this order. If he loses, he's out in January, but that still gives him plenty of time to make policy between November and January. Uh, Dave, what are the most likely outcomes here? Uh, if if the proclamation is still standing, we hold the election. What is the most likely outcome if Trump wins and if he loses, if, if you can dare to speculate? So everyone, not just in, in the ski industry, but other industries uses the expression, they wish they had a crystal ball. Um, I will tell you, if, if Trump wins in November, he may be emboldened on the issue of his anti-immigration policies. Now, uh, economically, I think the argument from the business community stands a better chance of winning out over those who are anti-immigration within the Trump White House. Do I see it being extended beyond December? Uh, it could be if, if the economic situation remains perilous. If we have unemployment come uh, December, that's in the 11% range. It would not surprise me if he won re-election that he extends it. That will cause a huge challenge because while that will certainly impact the ski industry, when summer utilizers of these guest worker programs uh, start hiring them, hopefully later in March and April, uh, they are going to be very significant in their advocacy. Uh, because when you start impacting the summer use of these and the spring use of these uh, temporary seasonal workers, it, it becomes very problematic from a business standpoint. Uh, if, if Biden wins election, I, I think I'm, he's certain to discontinue it, but he won't be able to do that until he takes office in January. I do think overall, though, I think, believe it or not, reasonableness is likely going to to allow for certain modifications to this proclamation. And within the proclamation itself, it allowed for periodic reviews, uh, 30 days. So July 24th, we're going to be reaching out to the by then to the administration, making our arguments, asking for our modifications specific to the ski industry. But other business sectors are seeking modifications as well. Throwing the fact that you're going to have lawsuits against this uh, executive order going on, uh, you're going to have the, the lawsuits related to the student visas that Harvard and MIT just brought today. I think that there's a good chance that those lawsuits will succeed to the extent that they will temporarily enjoin the proclamation in some fashion, um, and that may be just long enough so that it might not take effect now. Depends on, you know, court rulings, depends on judges, legal arguments. Right now, uh, the president, whether it's President Trump or Obama or whoever, they have some degree of legal authority simply as president to ban entry into the country based on national security reasons. Hmm. That's not really well defined uh, within the statute where that uh, authority comes from. And so that's going to be tested in these lawsuits. You know, President Trump, 
I think after the Supreme Court came down with the DACA ruling upholding President Obama's DACA program, um, I think that that played a role in how extensive this uh, immigration entry ban was. We had been hearing rumors and we had been working behind the scenes as other business sectors had uh, trying to get a 90-day immigration kind of uh, entry suspension instead of six months, which is what he came down with. And after DACA happened, within a few days, he came down with this pretty expansive and extensive immigration proclamation. But the good news is he built in some periodic reviews for the Department of Labor and the State Department and Homeland Security. And we're going to use that those opportunities to get key modifications for the ski industry. And you pointed out in a note to your members last week that even though the suspension goes through December 31st as of now, the applications are still open. So they can still start getting ready in case the program, the, the proclamation is overturned or modified. Well, th- this is where there's uncertainty. Uh, in addition to our request to the White House to allow uh, these temp- temporary visa workers in by December 1st, we're also going to be asking that they process the applications toward, you know, August, September, October. Uh, and those applications have to be processed at the consulate embassy level, um, whether that's in Australia or Peru or Brazil or Argentina or Jamaica or wherever. So we have to ask for that to happen. And one of the uncertain things about that, Stu, is um, COVID uh, in Brazil particularly, we're seeing significant spikes there. Are the embassies and consulates in Brazil even going to be able to open up to have in-person interviews with college students from Rio or Sao Paulo or wherever. Uh, same with Peru and Chile and uh, Jamaica or Costa Rica. We're hopeful that they can have processes put in place that protect embassy workers who can do these interviews. Think of using plexiglass and masks. And um, there doesn't have to be, uh, you can do these with social distancing even uh, inside an embassy to do that. So we're asking for that visa application processing to move forward because there is a lead time of two to three months for J-1s and H-2Bs. And I think that uh, they can handle that, but that's an issue for the State Department. And that's an issue separate and apart from this proclamation. So we're monitoring that very closely uh, to see how embassies and consulates in the Southern Hemisphere uh, are doing in that regard. Uh, so, uh, fingers crossed, that will be something that we can also get modified uh, so that the processing can happen with enough lead time to bring them into country by early December. So, so Dave, how reliant is the industry on these workers? If we get to the holidays and these J-1 workers are not allowed in the country, is there a possibility that there are ski areas in the United States that will not operate, will not be able to operate without these workers? No, I, I don't think that it's something that means we'll have to close this area altogether. It may impact how much of the mountain is open. It may impact um, our ability on lift operations, food and beverage. It certainly will impact lodging because turnaround time with lodging and even within the lodging sphere, the food and beverage within there. And so it could impact guest services significantly. Uh, if we don't have access to these temporary seasonal workers. 
So certainly I want to be crystal clear. It's not going to mean the ski area cannot open, but it is going to mean diminished staff, diminished safety, diminished guest service, uh, diminished, diminished operational efficiencies. Well, it sounds like the follow-up would be significant. I, I know this is far from the only issue you're dealing with here, Dave, as, as we all struggle to come to terms with what COVID means and what the future looks like and how fast we'll get back to any sense of normal and, and, and all just wondering what, what skiing will look like when the lifts start spinning in the fall. Just real quick before you go, what, what other issues are you working on that will influence those operations come winter? Safety certainly is going to be number one. And uh, whether it's the National Ski Areas Association or conglomerate resorts, um, we are working collaboratively on safety, guest safety and employee safety. So those are huge things. We have been doing uh, a tremendous number of webinars and Zooms and uh, things to, to spread information and to collaborate. You know, we're doing a great job uh, working with resorts that are going through this right now in the Southern Hemisphere to share best practices and to learn from what they're experiencing. Um, one thing that I will say, um, I'm very um, optimistic about the upcoming ski season. I'll tell you why, and, and this is not uh, an idea that's original to me. But because we're in a sport that is practiced outside where we are accustomed to wearing masks and gloves and we can social distance, and we do this at ski areas that are upwards of 5,000 acres in size. There is so much pent-up demand um, that we see in society that I anticipate handling that capacity of people who want to get out and recreate, whether it's in the summer for mountain biking at a ski area or in the winter for skiing and snowboarding. That's an enormous challenge for us are going to be capacity issues, uh, first and foremost, because both of guest and employee safety. Um, thankfully, we have some time uh, to figure that out, both from a, a on-mountain operations perspective and then a base area operations in terms of food and beverage and lodging. But I'm, I'm very encouraged that the ski industry, um, in part because of how we've always had to pivot with Mother Nature, we're going to be able to pivot because of COVID. And we are probably, of all the various uh, business sectors uh, in the United States, we are probably one of the first and best prepared to handle this pent-up demand uh, come November. So I'm very optimistic, uh, not just on our ability to deliver a quality guest experience, but how we operate both for employee and guest safety. All right, Dave. Well, I think optimism is one of the absolute best traits anyone can have right now. And hearing yours, I'm really glad you're the guy in charge of making all this stuff happen. So I wish you the best of luck with it. I will be watching uh, and, and looking forward to updates on, on what exactly what this thing's going to look like when we all get back out on skis again. Great. I really appreciate you uh, shedding some light to this important topic. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Right, you're welcome anytime, Dave. Take care. That's Dave Bird, Director of Risk and Regulatory Affairs for the National Ski Areas Association. I have to admit, I was a little skeptical about how sincere ski areas were in claiming they needed those visa workers, but Dave sold me on it. 
We're going to have to see how all this shakes out if high unemployment persists. The ski areas are likely to need more staffing, not less, in the age of COVID. So the timing here could be really bad if they aren't able to get that exception and bring those workers in by December 1st. So thank you very much for that insight, Dave. And thank you all for listening to this 10th COVID-19 and skiing podcast. I don't know if there will be any more, but I'm guessing that there probably will be, especially as we creep closer to the season. And there will definitely be more storm skiing podcasts. In fact, I already have one and parts of two others recorded. Subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com to hear those as soon as they're live. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.